0: This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Robbie Griggs as he talks about Paul's rebuke of Peter. Robbie is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Covenant Theological Seminary. This seminar was recorded at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen as Robbie Griggs discusses the significance of Antioch for the church today.
1: I just want to give a little bit of an outline here before we uh, jump right into the topic. Um, We're going to go through a few things here. First, uh, the context, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and the new sexual morality. We're going to talk a little bit about some recent controversies in that regard. Uh, Some critique, defining orthodoxy and orthopraxy in Antioch. Then a couple considerations, Antioch and what I'll call the Galatian moral map. So how do the controversies in Antioch relate to Broad's uh, Paul's broader morality in Galatians, and then the Galatian moral map and Paul's morality, and then finally some consequences. So uh, I want to start with a quotation from Ernst Kasemann from his little book, Pauline Perspectives. He says, controversy is the breath of life to a German theologian. Um, If you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, and if you read it in the context of its reception in Christian history— you might want to remove the word German and just say controversy is the breath of life to a theologian. First off, um, there, is, uh, there is the controversy in Galatia itself. Um, and it gets pretty heated where you have two of the early pillars, uh, pillar theologians of the nascent church going at it in what could seem a pretty unedifying spectacle, perhaps, if you were there. Um, You've got Paul at his polemical peak, rebuking Peter for his dodgy conduct, and even calling down curses on anyone who dares preach another gospel. There's also the controversy that uh, that the, the events in Galatia and then Galatians itself has produced, Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians largely set the agenda for about 500 years of debate amongst New Testament scholars over, among other things, the character of Pauline and early Christian theology, the relationship between Christianity and Judaism, the relationship between the law, its fulfillment in Christ, and the church's status in relation to the law. Further back, as I mentioned in my little um, abstract, you have the famous a debate between Augustine and Jerome over whether or not the things that are portrayed in Galatians 2 actually happened. Um, Jerome just could not tolerate the idea that Paul and Peter could be at loggerheads like this, and so he suggested that this was a big object lesson and that they were in cahoots uh, trying to prove a broader point. And Augustine thankfully insisted on the actual events and the possibility then of real conflict in the earliest days. And the reason he insisted on that is because he felt like uh, Antioch was uh, an important reminder of the reality of the gospel and the need to embrace the gospel in every generation and to embrace the gospel's implications in every generation. One uh, more recent uh, controversy had to do with uh, the relationship between the Antioch incident and how that might inform our understanding of the relationship between Orthodox belief and right practice. Uh, several years ago, Jamie Smith, um, Some of my, I, so I have some students and some former students here, I pretty much, and, and, and friends and colleagues and people I don't know, I pretty much insist on not being topical uh, when I teach. Uh, because I think oftentimes we need, like, I, I just, I'm just not going to do the blog thing. I'm not going to get in and jump in on something, because oftentimes we need time to figure out what is really going on. And so I'm actually responding to a blog controversy that happened four years ago, <laughs> a little bit in this, uh, in this presentation. Um, but a few years ago, Jamie Smith um, uh, kicked off a debate over the question of orthodoxy, and uh, and the relationship between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and he said some interesting, I think, and provocative things. He says now, no one for a second can deny that male and female uh, order to procreation views of sexual morality and marriage have been the historic teaching of the church. But it is surely also worth pointing out that conciliar standards of orthodoxy do not articulate such standards. If the adjective orthodox is untethered from such ecumenical standards, it quickly becomes a cheap epithet we idiosyncratically attach to views and positions in order to write off those we disagree with as heretics and unbelievers. If orthodox becomes an adjective that is unhooked from these conciliar canons, then it becomes a word we use to make sacrosanct the things that matter to us in order to exclude them. And then you can start folding all kinds of things into orthodoxy, like mode of baptism or pre-tribulation rapture or opposition to the ordination of women, which then entails writing off swaths of Christians who affirm conciliar orthodoxy. So perhaps we should be more careful with how we use the adjective orthodox. It can't be a word we flippantly use to describe what is important to us. The word is reserved to define and delineate those affirmations that are there, at the very heart of Christian faith, and God knows they are scandalous enough in a secular age. So I've got the link there. If anybody, By the way, if anyone wants access to the slides for this presentation, feel free to email me after. Um, it's just robbie.griggs at covenantseminary.edu. So this was from, uh, as I said, a blog post about four years ago, and in this, as you'd imagine, kicked off some responses. I'm going to note a couple of those uh, that I noted at the time, One, um, and these have some overlap, so I'm going to be summarizing here. Alistair Roberts and Derek Rishmoye responded to um, Smith's piece with a few different points of criticism. The first thing they noted was Smith's thin definition of orthodoxy. The problem they're trying to put their finger on here is that um, to treat the creeds as minimal statements of nominal orthodoxy, orthodoxy, ignores how they both relate to the scriptures from which they arise, and it ignores how they take as axiomatic many things that they do not express explicitly. Creeds, by their very nature, are uh, not uh, concise, self-enclosed documents. They depend for their meaning on the scriptures and on a variety of theological axioms that are embedded within the scriptures, and then, if not expressed explicitly in the creeds, then implied or entailed by the creeds. So, for example, the creeds don't need to address child sacrifice, because they take the preservation of human life as axiomatic. There are certain things that they take as axiomatic, and because they're not trying to comment on everything, they don't, they don't say things that go without saying, right? So when, when, when Smith wants to reduce the use of the term orthodox to what is explicit and only what is explicitly stated within the creeds, he's misunderstanding how the creeds work. Okay? And any confessional statement, he's, if you do that with any confessional statement, you're misunderstanding how that confessional statement works, The next uh, criticism that they launched at Smith was what I would call his tendency to separate orthodoxy from orthopraxy. Um, It's true that what Smith is getting at is a problem. Christianity is not reducible to a morality. Behavior is asymmetrically dependent on belief, but that makes orthodoxy and orthopraxy inseparably related. Okay. So another, another statement here. Um, for example, one can't say I'm an Orthodox Christian who believes that child fa- sacrifice is godly behavior. And the reason you can't say that is because to be an Orthodox Christian uh, entails certain beliefs about the pres- preservation of life. And so if you say that I'm an Orthodox Christian who believes that child sacrifice is godly behavior, then either you don't understand what orthodoxy entails or you're being dishonest about what orthodoxy entails. Okay. So these were the criticisms that were launched against Smith's initial, initial uh, foray into this question of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What I want to talk about next was um, an intervention in this debate that was, uh, that was given by uh, Wesley Hill. And here's where Antioch comes in. Wes said uh, in, a, in a post that he wanted to offer an exegetical footnote from the Antioch, Antioch incident. And uh, this was a pretty brilliant uh, intervention in my mind, rhetorically at least. He made a couple really important points. One of the things that he uh, did is that he affirmed uh, the criticism of this idea that behavior and belief are not se- are, are not mutually, uh, mutually entailing. He said that in Galatians 2 at least, unorthodox practice entails at a minimum defective belief. So that second point of the criticisms of Smith, he concedes. He says, yes, it's very clear that Paul thinks that Peter's uh, belief or his practice raises questions about his belief. But um, West did something else in this uh, this post. Um, He also uh, referred to what he called Paul's rhetorical strategy. So he said, yes, yes orthodoxy, uh, orthopraxy is downstream from orthodoxy, and if you have bad practice, that implicates, or or wrong practice, that implicates your beliefs. But he also said, I want to affirm strongly Paul's rhetorical strategy. And the way that he interprets Paul is as seeking common ground with Peter and the other uh, Jews at Antioch in order to persuade them. And I'll let Wes speak for himself by quoting what he says. He says, like Paul, I want to insist that there are certain behaviors and embodied actions that are so profoundly out of step with conciliar creedal Christianity that they warrant not mere tolerance but public rebuke. Same-sex sexual behavior and same-sex marriage are radical departures from scriptural historic Christianity, and those of us who are convinced of that must continue to sound the alarm. So you see the affirmation. Here's the other side of the coin. But also, like Paul, I want to appeal to my fellow Christians who disagree with me on this matter on the basis of what we share in common. I want to mount arguments for traditional male and female marriage that appeal to the creedal grammar that my opponents and I both affirm. So the question that I want to address is this. Is there insight from the Antioch incident to be gained on the relationship between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and particularly in reference to what uh, Wes addresses there in terms of same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior? I've got a couple uh, guiding questions that are going to determine how I proceed. The first one is, can the Antioch incident serve as a suitable analogy for debates over the new sexual morality. In other words, is this a good place to go for the kind of things uh, that Wes wants to do with it? The second question is, how might the Antioch incident inform our understanding of the relationship between orthodoxy and orthopraxy more broadly? So those are my two guiding questions. Let's read what Paul says in Galatians 2. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, just a footnote here. I'm including verses 15 and 16 because Wes includes them in his article. I'm going to come back to this and and ask the question whether or not we ought to consider verses 15 and 16 in in relation to this broader question. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, my first question in response to what West put is this. Is the common ground with Peter? So part of what West says is that, and and others have used the Antioch incident in this way, is that they want to pursue common ground in a similar fashion to how Paul pursues common ground with Peter. But we first have to ask the question, is Paul actually pursuing common ground with Peter? Um, One of the reasons we have to ask that question is because scholars point out that there really is no clear break until we get to Galatians 3.1. So if you read from Galatians 2.11 down to verse 21, it's really hard to know when you go from Paul's report about the Antioch incident to his framing of the issues that are happening in Galatia. Okay. And so uh, the problem um, is that if we take verses 15 and 16 as West does, as a part of Paul's address to Peter and his fellow Jews in Antioch, we don't know exactly where to stop. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, open up to Galatians 2, and I'll uh, you'll see that you'll see the issue. All right, so starting in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified, justified by works of the law but through, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our in, In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ in a servant of sin? Certainly not. For. Okay, so you see all the connecting words here. Um, I'm not clear. I'm not exactly clear why we should stop in verse 16 because we have all of these connecting words. Um, The options, I think, really are uh, verse 14 to stop in verse 14 or to stop in verse 17. And the reason is because of the verb changes. Okay, um, so you have in verse fifteen um, a move from the second person plural uh, to the third person plural in verse fifteen. Okay, um, so you see this if you've got your ESV Bible, if you're using the ESV Bible, there you'll see it's broken up into three different uh, paragraphs. Um, the next candidate, really for for um, for cutting things off, is uh, verse seventeen. But there, um, you still have the connecting words, right? So it's hard to see why, um, why, if you're going to take verse 15 and verse 16 in relation to the Antioch incident, why you wouldn't take the rest of the verses all the way down to 21. But the problem with that is that Paul switches uh, to the first person in verse, uh, the first person singular in verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay? So it's not clear that what Paul is doing in verses 15 and 16 is actually building common ground with Peter. It could be that he's building common ground with his Jewish Christian interlocutors in Galatia in verses 15 and 16. And that's what I, that's, the, that's the view I actually take. I think it's much more likely that Paul's report about what happened in Antioch uh, uh, ends in verse 14. Um, But even if we grant that what Paul is doing is trying to build common ground with Peter, then there are questions that that remain. One question is, how should we characterize the relationship between Peter's belief and his behavior? How does Paul characterize the relationship between Peter's belief and his behavior? What Wes says is that Peter's understanding is mistaken. And so Paul is building common ground with Peter in order to correct his understanding of the relationship between his belief and his practice. Okay. Now I think I, I can see why he would say that, but I think there's a there's a basic problem here, and the problem is that Paul calls Peter and his fellow Jews hypocrites. Um, He doesn't say that they're operating based on mistaken beliefs. He says they're operating in a way that they know to be wrong. So Paul's rebuke is aimed to get Peter and his fellow Jews to behave as they know they should, not to change their minds. And one of the reasons we know that that's the case is because Paul's the, the, the story that he tells just before the Antioch incident is the story of his successful trip to Jerusalem where people don't p- fall into the pressure of having Titus and, uh, and others circumcised and putting the Gentile mission on a Jewish footing. Okay? So what Paul is doing is he's telling two different stories of the reception of the gospel and its implications – one story is when the gospel is properly recognized and the Jew and Gentile missions are allowed to operate on separate tracks. The improper reception of the gospel is what is happening in Antioch when the Gentile believers are being forced to behave as Jews. Okay? And so I'm not sure we can say that Paul is trying to build common ground with Peter in order to persuade him about his mistaken beliefs because Paul calls him a hypocrite. And what he says, says essentially is that he should know better. Right? So it's difficult to adopt Paul's rhetorical approach with Hill's assumed interlocutors because they're not acting hypocritically, but rather they disagree about the orthodox entailments. Now, I think there are still further questions. One is, what is wrong with Peter's behavior? Okay? Or, by implication, the behavior of Paul's opponents. Paul addresses the food laws that split, uh, split up the Antioch church. Uh, but he also addresses other things. And this is one of the things that scholars note um, when they're looking at how Paul talks about the law in Galatians. Paul is astonished at the Galatian adoption of Jewish, uh, the Jewish worship calendar in Galatians 4, 9, and 10. Okay? So when he's talking about those things that characterize the Jewish community, he's not just talking about food laws. He's also talking about the Jewish calendrical practices. He warns the Galatians explicitly about adopting circumcision in Galatians 5. Okay, The beginning of Galatians 5. Here's the point. What Paul is addressing uh, is the adoption of practices that are implicated in obeying the Mosaic Covenant. That's the problem in Antioch. It's the idea that um, the Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be sons of Abraham. That's the issue that Paul is addressing. And he's saying that when you say that, you're preaching another gospel. Now, here's the thing, though, and this is the thing we have to recognize. The food observances, circumcision, and the religious calendars themselves are matters of indifference for Paul. It's only when those things are annexed to the Mosaic Covenant that they become problematic. Otherwise, they're matters of indifference. We see this clearly in a place like Galatians five six. Paul says, "For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision counts, nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love." So what he's saying is that circumcision and uncircumcision are matters of indifference in the church. Now, by the way, sometimes um, there's a there's a trend in New Testament scholarship to want to place Paul within Judaism, which I I completely endorse in general. Um, But sometimes there's this question, what actually got Paul beat up in the synagogue? Right? That's the question I want to ask. And I think it's when he says things like this. (laughs) When Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, I think that's the sort of thing that got him beat up in the synagogue. The problem with Peter's behavior in Antioch and Paul's Jewish opponents in Galatia is that it implicates the Gentiles in a covenant that has been fulfilled by Christ. And in doing that, this behavior suggests that to be a son of Abraham, one has to become a Jew. That's the problem that Paul has. It's not that the practices in themselves are wrong. He thinks they're matters of indifference. So there's a deeper problem with the Antioch um, incident as an analogy for uh, this issue. And it's that eating per se is not a problem for Paul... It is a matter of indifference like circumcision. But same-sex behavior is not a matter of indifference. Okay? So Paul has a pretty clear distinction between matters of indifference and matters of moral violation. It falls under the category of sexual immorality for Paul in Galatians in a place like Galatians 5:19 when Paul lists the works of the flesh. So one word about the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. Paul starts off with a pretty typical debating maneuver where he says the works of the flesh are evident. And what he means there is that my opponents are not going to disagree with this list. Okay, This is a standard Jewish Hellenistic vice list. You compare it to any number of Hellenistic Jewish vice lists of the period, and you're going to see considerable overlap. So what Paul is doing actually there is is he is... Um, Seeking common ground with ancient Jewish moral norms. Paul's vice list is tailored and representative. It is not exclusive. Okay? Sometimes when we read lists, we want to read them in that self-contained manner. But if you compare Paul's vice lists, you're going to see considerable overlap uh, across his corpus. And one of the things you're going to recognize is he's saying, I'm talking about these kinds of sins. He's not talking in an exclusive manner. Um, He ends this list uh, with a pretty striking comment. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul draws a pretty stark line between matters of indifference on the one hand and violations of moral norms uh, that rise to the seriousness of not being included within the kingdom of God on the other. Some conclusions. Peter's hypocrisy regarding food is significantly different from the debate over same-sex behavior. The former um, equals lying for Paul. That's why he calls their, their behavior hypocrisy. The latter equals a failure or refusal to understand the entailments of orthodox belief. Food, apart from the Mosaic Covenant, is a matter of indifference. Sex is not a matter of indifference. To depend on the Mosaic covenant for salvation or to persist, persist in the works of the flesh is to behave in ways that deny the gospel, which delivers us from the curse of the law on the one hand and the dominion of evil desires and behaviors on the other. So I think it's a challenge to try to use the Antioch incident in this way because the Antioch incident is not primarily about um, moral matters. It's primarily about matters of indifference, um, and so I think the analogy breaks down at that point. Now, there's more to be said, um, and I want to shift now to a consideration of how this Galatian moral map relates to things that Paul says elsewhere. What about food and sex, orthodoxy and orthopraxy elsewhere in Paul? Well, we see the same or very dis- similar distinction between matter- distinctions between matters of, di- of indifference and violations of what I'll call natural law. I think it's fair to say that, that Paul's vice lists demonstrate that he's operating with something like uh, ideas about the law of human nature. And I think Paul would think that those are encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. And occasionally he will recognize that there is a shared morality between um, Jewish norms and pagan norms. So that's why I'm, I, know, I recognize that natural law is an anach- anachronistic phrase, but I'm going to use that phrase as, a, as a, a hanger for this common morality, I think, that Paul often references. He operates with some similar distinctions between matters of dif- indifference and violations of moral law. Um, in areas of indifference, there is, a, though, a significant Pauline injunction to walk in love. That's one of the things that we see very clearly when we go to food and sex elsewhere in the Pauline corpus. Orthodoxy entails orthopraxy, both with matters of indifference and with moral violations. In other words, it's possible to, um, to violate God's law in how we deal with matters of indifference. So sex in Romans 1, 24 to 2, 1. We notice, if we were to read this passage and look at it in detail, a number of connections. There's a connection between the mind, the passions, and the behaviors that are assumed to arise from the mind and the passions. Paul notes that a rejection of God leads to a divine handing over of humanity to wrong belief, disordered passions, and resulting sinful behaviors. He uses same-sex passions and behaviors and gives them as paradigmatic examples of this divine handing over, but he also places them within a broader list of things that, ba- that Paul thinks are uh, representative violations of God's law. Sex is a part of a, Paul's broader vice list that deserves death, and it renders all humans, all humans, without excuse. That's one thing that's notable about how Paul handles sexual sexual immorality. He places it within broader human violations of God's law that he views as uh, emblematic of our fallen estate. If we look at sex in 1 Corinthians 5 uh, to 6, we see some similarities and also some important wrinkles. And sorry, this is super tiny, my, my apologies. I'll try to, try to read it uh, carefully and clearly. The first thing we see is that sexual immorality leads to the handing over of the offender to Satan for the destruction of the flesh and his salvation. In this case, he's talking about a man who has his stepmother as his sexual partner. And he says, um, this needs to be dealt with. <laughs> um, and it needs to be dealt with uh, not simply for the peace and purity of the church before the salvation of the person right so paul is saying that that if we ignore these kinds of violations what we're doing is actually allowing the person to live in the such a way in the flesh in such a way that will lead to that person's destruction so the handing over is a positive handing over it's a handing over so that the person might come to recognize the significance of his actions. It's also interested that this is grounded Christologically in a proper response to our Passover lamb, whose sacrifice we should commemorate not with malice and evil, but with sincerity and truth. In other words, right practice is grounded in right belief, a proper perspective on Christ's Paschal sacrifice leads us to a certain kind of sexual morality. There is a warning here against associating with uh, with sexually immoral people and others who persist in grievous sins. Again, Paul doesn't just limit it to sexual immorality. He has other grievous sins in mind. But he notes that this is for the church and not the world. He says that it's God's business to judge the world. And that with respect to making moral judgments, we have to do that within the church. Now here's um, an an interesting connection with Galatians uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, um, a similar similar kind of language to what you find at the end of Paul's um, works of the flesh list. the connection between right perception of God's saving events in Christ's and appropriate action. Some concluding sort of summary remarks on what we see with respect to sex in Galatians, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. Sexual immorality is not a matter of indifference, but it is the occasion of divine wrath and the cause for exclusion from an inheritance in the kingdom. Persistent sexual immorality is the sort of behavior that calls into the question the orthodoxy of one's belief. You cannot say, I'm an orthodox Christian who believes that adultery, among other things, is godly Christian behavior. And you could just, by the way, you could just take any one of those grievous sins in Paul's vice lists, and you could put it right in there. I am an orthodox Christian who believes that greed, among other things, is godly Christian behavior. There's a connection between the mind, passions, and actions that is assumed in each one of these texts, such that orthodoxy entails orthopraxy of disposition and action. That's why at the end of these lists, Paul is always reminding them of what is true, because what is true has implications for how they live. In all these contexts, Paul is both clear about these matters and persuasive in reminding and calling churches to attend to them. He's clear about them, and he reminds them of what is true and what the implications are for these various areas of their life. Turning to food in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, we get a few different wrinkles, and then I'll say a few concluding uh, remarks, and we'll have some time for questions. In 1 Corinthians 8... Paul says, the knowledge of of God puffs up, but love builds up. You'll know that he's dealing here with the question of food sacrifice to idols. And we get, in this context, uh, some really interesting Trinitarian theology thrown in for good measure. Paul appeals to the Shema, and then he includes Jesus within the Shema, so that the idea is that Jesus is one uh, with the triune God. So I find it really interesting how, you know, this, people who say ethics don't have anything to do with theology. I mean, Paul seems to do a lot of theology in his ethicizing. Um, the reality that Paul appeals to, though, is that there are not many gods, as many suppose, but there is one God. And that's where we get the confession of Jesus as Lord within this triune identity. His conclusion is this. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. So here we see precisely the same sort of thing that Paul says in Galatians, and that is that what you eat is a matter of moral indifference. There's a qualification, though. Though we have rights to indifferent things, we are to set these rights aside for those with weak consciences he notes that many people in the ancient world, because when they eat meat, they're used to eating meat within temples, and those temples serve a religious purpose. And so he says, many people have weak consciences because they're used to associating the eating of meat with the worship of a particular deity. And so even though you're um, even though you're no better off if you eat or if you do not eat, you're not simply your own. You're a part of a community. And so that means that you can't simply partake in meat if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. He concludes this way. Those who, uh, for whom this knowledge of God puffs up and doesn't teach them what it means to walk in love, Paul puts it this way. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and winning their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, it is possible to misuse our rights with respect to indifferent matters. It is possible to sin against Christ with respect to issues that are morally indifferent. It's not enough to be right. Because the truth is placed in the service of love. That's Paul's point. If you're right, and you don't use the truth for the purposes of building up your brother, then you are denying the very knowledge of God. Because the knowledge of God is for love. It is for building up. That's an important wrinkle. Paul addresses, again, food in Romans 14. He also, interestingly, addresses the issue of sacred days in Romans 14. Um, So it shows you that he thinks, just as he does in Galatians, he thinks of these indifferent matters as a package deal. Food, worship practices, circumcision, if you're in a Jewish context. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. As in 1 Corinthians, food is a matter of relative indifference. It is not a matter of complete indifference indifference. The ultimate aim is to walk in love, which requires avoiding causing the weaker brother to stumble. All right, here's some concluding reflections then, and uh, some observations, and then I'll open up for questions. For Paul, orthodoxy entails orthopraxy, both in matters of indifference and in violations of moral law. Yet, To walk in love looks differently for these categories. Persistent violations of moral norms belie claims to orthodox belief. Either one does not know what orthodox belief entails, or one is acting hypocritically. And in this case, what Paul does is he rebukes. Similarly, Elevating matters of indifference like the Mosaic food laws, the religious calendar, and circumcision to the status of moral requirements is either a misunderstanding or a hypocritical misalignment with the gospel, which removes the curse of the law. So when we take matters of indifference and we misuse them, the proper response for Paul is a rebuke. In either case, we're not walking in love. Nonetheless, in areas of indifference, the Pauline injunction to walk in love remains with respect to the weak, those who do not know as they ought. And in all of these cases, the posture that Paul takes up is one of persuasion. His means of persuasion differs, though, depending on the kind of case he's looking at. What about current debates over the status of sexual desire in reform circles? I know many of you guys are thinking this, okay? A few comments. Well, generally, these are not matters of indifference. I think that's clear. Yet, at least in our circles, there's broad agreement both about the status of illicit desires and actions as truly and properly sin. So there are some questions, I think, that we need to deal with and think about, and I'll Uh, state them and not try to answer them now. How does a reformed theological anthropology and moral psychology evaluate beliefs about and the mortification of same-sex desire? What approaches to the mortification of these desires belie orthodox belief? How might character standards for the mortification of other kinds of desires provide models in this case? One of the things that a review of Paul's vice list shows us is that sexual immorality is one example amongst a variety of, inexam- of other examples. And so the question that we, I think, need to look at is not simply about um, the character of same-sex desire and attraction, but the character of these, these entire lists themselves. Um, and we need to think of how uh, how they operate in relation to each other, not in isolation.
0: You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.